0: These technologies being developed for Exascale are going to not just be limited in their use to Exascale systems, they are going to wash downward over the market, some of them all the way down. Governments around the world are recognizing more than they did that HPC is necessary, not just for scientific and engineering research, but also for economic competitiveness. China's a younger market for HPC and a younger market economy.
1: From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen, great to be with you again. How are you? Good. Hope you're doing well. And I'm really happy to announce our guest for this week, Steve Conway, formerly of Hyperion Research and now with Conway Communications. Steve, welcome. Thanks, glad to be here. From my own perspective, I've always thought of Steve as as good as anybody in our entire industry in explaining HPC technology and HPC trends in a way that is compelling, but also very comprehensible.
2: So I've had the pleasure of knowing Steve also for many years. So I was lucky enough in the, I think, early 90s it was, Steve? when It was, yeah. When we worked together at Cray. So I've learned a lot over the years in all aspects of HPC, from marketing and communication at one end to technology and market trends at another, and then tracking Steve's moves at IDC and then Hyperion Research, and now again with Conway Communications, because you've been part of that before IDC as well, right?
0: Yeah, for 14 years, I had my own consultancy before I joined IDC.
2: Yeah, so it's great to connect again and catch up with things.
1: Steve, tell us a little bit about Conway Communications, if you would.
0: Not too much to say, (laughs) as it was before, one-person consultancy and I've already started again working with some government agencies and some vendors, and I love my time at IDC and and Hyperion Research, great people. Uh, But this frees me up to focus more of my time on the things that most interest and intrigue me about the HPC community and the HPC market.
2: So Steve, hopefully what I'm about to say qualifies in that category, <laughs> but but one of the things that you obviously tracked, like you said, is working with governments all around the world, not just the US, and tracking HPC from the low end all the way to the very high end. So Doug and I were talking about the RFI that the DOE issued a few months ago, and we had a wonderful chat with Horst Simon, who took us through the thought process and the actual business process. Maybe that's a place to start on your perspective on that in general, maybe a little bit of exascale and how it's impacting various things.
1: To me, the language in that RFI that really struck me is they use the term moving away from monolithic systems and more into this distributed idea. Steve, what are your thoughts about that as far as how that reflects trends at the very leadership supercomputing, but also the broader HPC market?
0: There are a couple of trends embedded in that. One is heterogeneity, something that a former colleague of mine at and Shaheen's at Cray research, Bill Harrod, has has written a very nice influential paper about. But the fact that the problems are, are more heterogeneous in nature themselves, and then they're benefiting from more heterogeneous solutions, which means monolithic, you know, you know, one of a kind kinds of computers are probably not going to be the future. And you see that in DOE's plans too, that if you have a monolithic computer, then you're constantly having to augment and over-provision for the problem at hand or under-provision. It's just not efficient. So really need more modular, composable kinds of resources to handle this. The second dimension there has to do with movement from today's highly distributed computing to what you might call massively distributed computing, the kind of edge to exascale developments that we see happening and seeing what place HPC has in that emerging digital universe. I think it's an important though limited role for HPC, but the emergence of edge computing really promises to reorient the whole IT environment globally, including the positions of clouds and HPC data centers as well.
1: That's really fascinating. What sort of adjustments will that take in the minds of HPC strategists where you're moving away from this huge thing in your data center?
0: Well, you know, I think the growth of edge computing is going to pull HPC into the mainstream in a serious way for the, I think, the first time mainstream IT. I mean, because HPC has been pretty much a self-contained niche market for most of its history. And so that changes things very heavily. And those changes ripple throughout the HPC market, including things like HPC teams say at major vendors. Having suddenly to link up with their colleagues who served commercial markets and to be able to, you know, that doesn't always happen in companies. So suddenly they have to work closely together because what needs to happen is the embracing of standards that can extend from edge to exascale, et cetera, for efficiencies and communication. So a lot of new things happen. And then, I, and I think Shaheen, Doug, you and I were talking about this one other time recently is- The notion that these technologies being developed for Exascale are going to not just be limited in their use to Exascale systems, they are going to wash downward over the market, some of them all the way down, others part way down. But the mainstream IT market is going to really benefit from some of that, I think, over time.
2: One threat here is the ever slowly but surely happening convergence between HPC and the commercial market accelerated by the advent of AI. Do you see that? And how would you comment A- on that?
0: Absolutely. And it hasn't been because HPC has so much reached down our HPC vendors into the commercial market. It's more that problems in the commercial market have pushed up into the HPC competency space where they can no longer be solved efficiently only with enterprise IT servers, for example. Mm -hmm. So you do see HPC technology and HPC systems increasingly being integrated into enterprise data centers to support business operations, typically in places where decision points were, were very, very fast capable computing is needed in a pipeline.
2: I think the customer community gets this because they're obviously driving it and they're looking for talent and infrastructure and that drives them to the places that you just mentioned. Do you think the vendors get that yet or has the vendor community caught on that HBC is a lot more aligned with AI than perhaps they thought and maybe it should be reflected in how they're organized? I think
0: that's going to take more time. It's a process that started and is farther along at some vendors than others. But, you know, this really, I, I think it's been a dozen years since um, mm-hmm. Earl Joseph, my friend and colleague at Hyperion Research, and I were approached by, uh, you know, SAP and SAS Institute and so forth about this issue because they were saying, well, some of our biggest commercial customers have problems that we're concerned that we may not be able to address. So we need to learn about HPC. So so those vendors, those commercial vendors kind of are forced to confront this earlier on. And as I said, within some of the some of the very large HPC vendors have big footprints in the commercial market too. But those folks have not historically necessarily collaborated closely with the HPC folks. More of that's going to need to happen
2: right. I'm actually encouraged by what you were saying, because I was just thinking about system vendors and storage vendors. And if it's kind of permeated to enterprise software folks, like you mentioned, that really is significant and encouraging. Yeah, I I
1: agree. Yeah, as AI increasingly becomes a major competitive tool for companies, the pressure on more and more companies to bring in the you know hpc class capabilities is going to be there yeah
0: and it, it's going to be interesting how that happens because at least i see you know traditional simulation and ai based problem solving sometimes happening separately and in the commercial in commercial markets more so but in a lot of cases and i think over time in a lot more cases problems will benefit from both simulation and and advanced analytics or AI, whatever, tech methodologies. So it's going to be one of the things I'm most interested in of all and is tracking methodologies under the AI umbrella, how those are developing.
1: Now, Steve, I think earlier on our conversation, it sounds as though a lot of the big picture, a lot of what's going on is driven by this heterogeneity. It's enabling all sorts of different types of workloads, therefore You need more distributed systems as opposed to the monolith. But there are two aphorisms you've passed on to me that I really like. One (laughs) is in HPC, hardware is easy, software is hard. That's a good one. But also back in the day, I think you told me this in 2015 when we're still kind of in the x86 Intel dominant era that just on that whole dominance that was going on for year after year, your quote was, if you don't give people choices they won't look for alternatives.
2: Yep. <laughs> yep.
1: I love that one. But now we're in a totally different era. It's just amazing how it's changed in 7 years. It say. is
0: and and you I really agree with you that sometimes unsung heroes in HPC the software people a lot of the challenge as usual falls uh, more heavily to them and when you think of the heterogeneity and kind of this massively distributed computing that extends from edge to clouds and data centers and containers and so forth and hypothetically even to spacecraft then you start immediately thinking of the what challenges that presents to programmers and to programming models and you know those folks are going to have I hope fun, but it's going to be huge challenges placed in their laps.
1: Yes, exactly. What do you both think of this? It, you know, we we hear about the convergence of HPC and AI. Do we also, are we going to see a divergence of HPC and AI? Where in terms of this supporting technology, we hear about AI supercomputers,
2: GPU rich.
1: So do we think we'll evolve toward more specialized AI
2: systems? My view was and continues to substantially be that and I'm a minority I think that AI is a subset of HPC that the only part of AI that is really moving the needle is deep learning and deep learning is substantially HPC now what has changed there is the lack of requirement for high precision arithmetic and how lower precision arithmetic is doing quite fine thank you very much and it keeps going lower you know went from 64 to 32 to 16 and now 8 and you know maybe even lower than that and then while that's happening topics such as Unum and Posit that we had a chat with John Gustafson with last week are pointing to ways of achieving accuracy without really requiring 64-bit computing. So while I hate the clickbait quote, the end of XYZ, Mm -hmm. because it's never right, it nevertheless kind of brings up that, are we seeing the end of in silicon 64-bit computing? There was a chip that was announced that Hot chips, the Chinese chip, the Baron 100, that actually does not have 64 bit arithmetic on it. They chose to allocate those silicon budgets to other things. So that is definitely an impact on HPC. It's the first time where I see AI is like really impacting HPC in a material way, not just to get to the last mile and then I'll do the last mile with traditional HPC, which is also real. So I think in reality, they actually are impacting each other in a way that is helpful to both. But I continue to think that the fundamental operations of AI are substantially arithmetic, numerical, and therefore in the HBC domain. And when I look at the future of AI, those arithmetic operations aren't disappearing. They're actually going to grow faster than the non-arithmetic stuff. So I expect the portion of AI that is numerically intensive to actually be a larger and larger portion over time. And that impacts the fuzzy logic and the non-numerical part of AI, expert systems and things like that that are also necessary, but probably not the material piece.
0: I really agree with that uh, pretty wholeheartedly because I I see this mixed precision spectrum as part of the growing heterogeneity and as part of what's driving the need for non-monolithic systems on both the hard and software side. I also agree with you, if I understand you right, that I see AI, which is still at an early stage, as really an almost an accelerator a function for much of HPC. Sometimes it stands alone, but a lot of times it's combined with simulation. And I think that at least for the near term and midterm, that quantum is probably going to function as an accelerator also. And it's kind of, Difficult to imagine, but there are people who know more about this than I do. A single compiler that can effectively combine the results of uh, simulation, AI, and say quantum results makes sense of all that. So I think we're going to have systems that are really fundamentally non-monolithic for a while. You know, and I was just talking with somebody last week and about the role of simulation, which is always interesting and and said, you know, we do, we're really an AI shop, but in order to refine the models to run for AI, we might have to do thousands of simulations. Uh, So simulation gets inserted into this in multiple places. And I guess all I'm saying is that simulation's role is at least in my mind,
2: increasing, not decreasing. Absolutely, also the need for synthetic data that we all know that AI requires more data than we thought it did. And sometimes you don't have natural data, you have to have synthetic data. And that has to come through physics-based, as real as possible, simulated Yes, it does. And
0: I just I remember in the 2016 Supercomputing SC conference there, I had the honor of introducing the plenary session on precision medicine. And Marty Head from Glaxo, who was then at Glaxo Smith, client, said that they had minuscule usable data compared to what they really needed at that time. And I, I don't think it's changed dramatically in the intervening years. Some of these domains, there may be lots of data out there, but it's not exactly usable. So a lot of them are data short. And, and synthetic, realistic synthetic data is a huge need.
2: And then on top of that, you've got the post Moore's law situation where speed is not coming from higher frequencies, but it's coming from transistor budgets and therefore architectural optimization. And now if you have killer apps that are showing up in the AI world, and they're going to be across the board, whether they're audio processing or visual or this or that inference at the edge inference at the data center. So now you have a large number of use cases each of which represent a relatively sizable market so it makes sense to go and super optimize for those applications and that's also something that we're seeing in the market with all the cpus and accelerators that are being created to address this or that so that leads us into a world where it is by definition not monolithic anymore. It is not only heterogeneous, but it is highly heterogeneous and it needs to be customized. So the explosion of data volumes, plus the emergence of killer apps that are numerically intensive, plus post Moore's law. So there's a confluence of activity that is pushing us towards this massively distributed, massively heterogeneous environment.
0: Speaking of customization, which you just raised that topic, which you're thinking on the drive toward more customizable processors like ARM, which has paid IP, or maybe a little bit later, RISC-V, which is starting to build momentum with community IP.
2: That's right. I see customization as a big trend across the board, really starting with chiplets and the menu items that you could click, boom, 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 and kind of build a substrate based on multiple chiplets. I think many of them will be for a fee, but they could be based on different architectures and nobody's going to care. And then you've got UCIe that will connect them together. And then you have to customize those. So I think there's a hierarchical way of customizing from chips to systems, to clusters, to data centers. And if you include lab equipment and edge devices that are detecting and spewing large volumes of data, then those become computers as well. You know, my my joke is that there was a time when we'd said a car is a computer on wheels. (laughs) Now every wheel is a computer. And now every, the brake in the wheel is a computer and everything is a computer. So what does the world look like when everything really is a computer? So now a lot of these applications are going to permeate. And like you were saying, Steve, HPC is going to get pushed down more in some places, less in other places, but I feel like it is coming.
0: It creates bigger challenges I think for vendors because the buyers, the organizations that buy these kind of split out more widely into their requirements. For example, if you're let's say a Wall Street firm or many Wall Street firms, you have primarily one application that you run 24 by 365 and You'll bend over backwards and spend money and do all kinds of things to run that single application faster. On the other hand, you'll have academic sites, NSF centers and DOE centers that have thousands of users with different requirements. Those folks, ideally, they're going to want, not saying this exists, but they're going to want for each of their users to reach out and assemble on the spot exactly the combination of resources and processor types and precision and blah, blah, blah that they need. They're going to have to move in that direction. I think with the RFI, you're starting to see some of that thinking materialize.
2: So maybe this is a segue into how this is impacting the global market and some of the indigenous activities that are making good progress, getting good traction, and also obviously the geopolitics of the globe right now.
0: It's tricky in its implications because what you're seeing, I think, in general, is that a good thing, which is governments around the world are recognizing more than they did that HPC is necessary not just for scientific and engineering research, but also for economic competitiveness. And this really changes everything. For number one, I think it's what has enabled in some of those areas, funding to be obtained for exascale and pre-exascale systems costing, you know, 100 million US dollars and up. I don't think that would have necessarily happened if the politicians thought that HPC was just deciding whether a proton was going to turn left or right. So that is a really, really big change. But Along with that, I think it's helped to drive the thinking that, gee, if this is so important for our GDP, for our economies, then we really can't depend on other countries for it. We need to develop our own Mm -hmm. HPC ecosystem here. And that is what's happening. I mean, you see that especially China and Europe, but but to some extent also in Japan, which has always been a leader. And so that creates a lot of interesting... (laughs) Uh, questions about what happens with the global market do we in the end have a greater number of vendors and innovators serving the global market that's a good thing or do people retreat behind their own fences and you know europe has its market with its vendors and asia pacific the same and the us the same And each of them has access to a smaller portion than today, maybe a smaller portion than the entire global market. And what does that say for, you know, how much money is there in the divided markets? How many companies can that sustain? How much innovation and R&D investment can that sustain? There are a lot of, I think, interesting questions that get raised by these indigenous technology movements.
2: They sure do. And one topic that keeps coming up in my mind is The scientific community for the past so many hundred years has relied on very open collaboration and sharing of partial results, etc. That has become a little bit more complicated with intellectual property and monetization of that. But as the whole global situation gets fragmented and partitioned, essentially, sometimes for geopolitics reasons, sometimes for you know industrial policy reasons, the same thing, really. How does the scientific community react to what could be friction and how you might collaborate or not be able to collaborate at all?
0: At least so far, and maybe there are some exceptions to this for specific countries, but in, in general, at least what I'm seeing is that collaboration is not being materially affected by that collaboration mm. continues. You see things like in Japan, where there seems to be a desire for for Riken to open up more, even, to non-Japanese researchers. And, and they are getting access to the Fujitsu Fugaku system there. So there's an opening up in, in greater collaboration at the same time that Japan continues to compete to be the exascale leader in technology. So those two worlds of the actual user communities and the kind of the government strategies seem so far not to be clashing.
1: Obviously, the major geopolitical conflict is China-US. Do you see inherent advantages or disadvantages in the two systems in place? You have sort of a capitalistic Somewhat economy in China that's also with heavy state control by the regime over against our system. And in the long run, is that an advantage or not a, a big material advantage for the U.S. in a technological competitive sense?
2: I think that the funding models that we observe are clearly a little bit different. And this is highly visible in the quantum computing space where there's a lot of activity globally. The U.S. activity is highly driven by private money but as well as a very non-trivial amount of public money Mm -hmm. whereas when you go to other parts of the world the public money is the overwhelming portion of it and for something that is at such infancy that may not quite matter and you can probably see progress happening depending on who does what but i think as the markets develop clearly the private money gives you more flexibility to allocate the capital more efficiently. And obviously, fundamentally, centralization of priorities is is a risk. If you get it right, it's awesome. If you get it wrong, Mm. you're really dead in the water. And that's why the more diverse way of allocating capital is long-term more efficient.
0: I guess I would agree with that. And part of it also is different stages of market maturity, in spite of the differences in the system, that China is a younger market for HPC and a younger market economy. Uh, it's still on a path from a controlled economy to a market economy. Then certainly the US or any European markets, you know, Chinese venture capital is, that situation is much, much better than it was 10 years ago, the venture capital scene. But it's not, as, as Shaheen says, it's not like what you would find in Europe, much less the US. Then at a certain point, it's hard to separate out the politics of the situation and kind of the global competitiveness in in that arena
1: the only other point i want to make is we have this atomization and balkanization in tech in general but especially in hpc where heterogeneity specialized workloads custom and steve you mentioned programming is this you know we love the variety of hardware solutions that are out there to address the workloads needs that exist but could this also just creates such a problem in terms of the on the software end and programming end, and, or there are other issues in satisfying those heterogeneous demands.
0: It's definitely a complicated situation because to some extent, companies in particular that vendors, for example, that are in the HPC market compete globally for the best and the brightest people. Um, and so you start needing to look at, well, are they being offered in various places and has to do with salary and living conditions and and so forth. But, you know, they have to be frankly also in places where they can live under tolerant conditions because they can be different from the people who are living there now. So it's really a, a very interesting kind of moving picture and particularly for some of the specialties that are in very short supply. I don't, I'm not sure there are enough people on planet Earth with the specialized brains and capabilities to be great algorithm developers. <laughs> that's 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 a, a difficult skill that countries are going to be competing, I think, more and more for. So they they kind of have to quality of life kinds of things really. I think enter into this as well as to who's going to be forging ahead with in programming and and other hardware other aspects of hardware and software and storage development shaheen
2: i absolutely think you're right as i've said for the past some years now new technologies enforce the culture that they need to be successful yeah they do not adopt the culture they enforce it and my example is that if you pick up farming it'll take you two or three seasons before you get the message that you better get up at 5 a.m. in the morning (laughs) (laughs) and you better go to the field (laughs) and you better do it in the fall, because if you don't, you're just going (laughs) to starve, right? You do that for 10 years, that becomes your culture. Now you've got the work ethics that we associate with the parts of the world that have that kind of industries in present. And then you go to a factory and then you realize that if you don't get the conveyor belt going, you're not going to be as efficient. So To me, when you are looking at information technology, it too has certain cultural requirements that it will eventually impose, and it will impose it by rewarding those who get it first. And of course, those cultural norms are the most difficult ones to change once you have them.
1: Yep. Okay, brilliant stuff. Well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Always a treat to speak with you. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Take care, guys. That's it for this episode of the at HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on insidehpc.com and posted on orionx.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The at HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.